0: Back, uh, our uh, first afternoon panel is uh, going to explore uh, issues of secrecy and transparency. Uh, of course, an essential component of any uh, liberal democracy, any free society, is accountability of government to the people. Is the sort of the most essential check uh, on abuse of government power, and so uh, our. Assurance that the vast capabilities of the government to surveil uh, are being used for legitimate purposes depends on our confidence in the mechanisms of oversight that are in place to monitor the use of these often extraordinarily secret uh, programs and tools. Uh, so, of course, the, the vital question then is how reliable and effective can that oversight B. Do you need greater transparency, not just to internal overseers, but to the public, uh, to allow people to be confident that uh, these great authorities are being used in a responsible uh, fashion? And so, uh, again, because everyone has a a biography packet, I don't want to spend too much time on introductions. I will uh, let uh, the uh, fantastic uh, Siobhan Gorman, who I think is joining us on her final
1: last
0: final day in journalism. This is her, her final act of journalism. Um, I know it will, will uh, be up to her extraordinarily high standard. Uh, Siobhan Gorman.
2: Thank you all for coming. Um, we're, we're about a year and a half or so into the kind of post Snowden era, and it seems like it's a good time to assess how the oversight of surveillance programs has and hasn't changed uh, since then. Notably, the latest congressional effort to impose limits on surveillance uh, failed quite spectacularly on the uh, Senate floor last month. um, And that was focusing on the mass collection of business records. That issue will return again next year, of course, because the provision of the Patriot Act that authorizes uh, the the mass collection of business records is due to expire in June, Um, how that, will proceed in a Republican Congress I think is um, something that we will certainly be eagerly watching in January and beyond. Um, In the meantime, aside from some of the smaller modifications that President Obama made on his own 11 months ago, uh, where are we in monitoring these um, programs that continue those we do and don't know about? Um, one, one sort of interesting thing that, that I've noted is that the, the most, um, I think, tangible change that I've seen the government make post-Snowden is actually turning NSA's surveillance on itself um, with its sort of insider threat program, um, given that we haven't seen the congressional action that I think some were expecting. Uh, it's interesting that, that that's actually the, um, the biggest change so far. Um, I think it's a great time to take stock of the current oversight apparatus, and we have a fabulous and ideologically diverse panel here to do this for us. You have their bios, I'll keep it short. Uh, Bob Litt is General Counsel for the Director of National Intelligence. He's become the government's point man when it comes to responding to critiques and reform proposals, as well as overseeing the process of releasing top secret documents and sensitive, on sensitive surveillance matters. Uh, Sharon Franklin is executive director of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which was reinvigorated and given a rather clear role in the wake of the Stone disclosures. Uh, prior to joining the board, she served for more than eight years as senior counsel of the Constitution Project, which is a nonprofit legal watchdog group. Uh, Kirk Wybe is a former top official at the National Security Agencies, uh, where among his honors, he earned the agency's uh, meritorious. Civilian Service Award for his work on foreign strategic weapons systems. While he was at the agency, he also raised alarm bells about wasteful agency spending on collection programs that were failing. He left NSA in 2001 to work with former colleagues on a consulting business addressing big data issues, and he has since become a vocal advocate for governmental accountability, particularly at NSA. Catherine Hawkins is the National Security Fellow at OpenTheGovernment.org, which advocates for government transparency. She focuses on reforms for the national security classification system and preventing the use of classification to conceal government wrongdoing and secret interpretations of the law. And last but not least, Stephen Aftergood, who also specializes in pushing for government transparency. He directs the Federation of American Scientists Project on Government Secrecy, and his newsletter has become an indispensable resource for the latest developments on government efforts to keep sensitive information under wraps. He recently initiated a successful challenge to a CIA proposal to destroy emails of most of their employees after they leave the agency. Um, so with that, I'd like to just kick off with some questions, and um, we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Um, the first, and I think most obvious, is uh, is the current oversight structure for government surveillance adequate, and um, maybe we can get Bob and Kirk to, to kind of initially weigh in, and then we'll go from there.
3: So, I mean, I, it, it's worth probably just setting out the nature of the problem, uh, which is that um, of necessity you have to conduct intelligence activities largely in secret. If you're conducting them in the open, you're not gonna have, you'll save a lot of money because you won't need to have an intelligence community. Um, And so uh, the current oversight structure was set up, uh, the current congressional oversight structure was set up uh, after the Church and Pike uh, committees and the the sort of trade-off that was made was there would be intelligence committees established in both houses of Congress. That are, by and large, uh, with some exceptions, much more nonpartisan or bipartisan than other committees. And there's a statutory obligation on the Intelligence Committee to keep the committees uh, on the intelligence community to keep the committees fully and in- currently informed of all intelligence activities. Um, I can't speak for anything before my time, which began uh, with the Obama administration, but we have uh, pretty religiously adhered to that. Um, we are up there. Um, Uh, hundreds of times a year. Uh, We brief them on all of our major programs. I mean it it is worth noting that the uh, surveillance activities that have been leaked were fully disclosed to the Intelligence Committees. They they knew all about them Um, and and so we that's the kind of trade-off that we've made in congressional oversight. There's also a whole uh, aspect of uh, oversight within the executive branch uh, that includes uh, inspectors general, uh, of general counsel, when you're, when you're talking about uh, FISA activities, the Department of Justice plays a substantial role. And then again, within FISA, you have a degree of supervision by the FISA court. Um, and I think that the, the documents that have come out over the last year and a half have, uh, I think, dispelled the notion that the FISA court is just a rubber stamp. Um, they are they are searching and serious in the way they approach the legal issues. I, I guess Javon, I would quarrel with you when you say the the biggest change in the last year and a half has been the insider threat uh, program. Partly because p- partly because that's something that was uh, was in train uh, before Snowden, um, and partly because I think the biggest uh, change has been the uh, intelligence community's attitude towards disclosure to the public. Um, I, I've said this before, and my boss, the DNI, has said it, but. I think that uh, the leadership of the intelligence community has come to the conclusion, which I think is absolutely correct, um, that we would have had less damage um, had we been more transparent about these activities. Um, It's my view that had we found a way, for example, to uh, disclose to the public uh, in advance that we were uh, interpreting Section 215 to permit bulk collection, and we'd done that Mm -hmm. on our own terms and in a less sensational manner, Um, it would have been much less controversial than when it came out uh, on the front page of the the Washington Post. And I think we've taken that lesson to heart. Um, There has been a degree of disclosure about our activities, um, not only what's been leaked, but what's been voluntarily initiated, um, that is absolutely unprecedented and and that is going to continue. Um, We've got an ongoing program to try to declassify things. I think there are some difficult lines to draw. In general, I think... Uh, we can be much more transparent about the legal authorities, the processes, and the oversight than we can about what we're actually doing. Um, because what we're actually doing is, is, is what needs to be protected. And, and I will tell you that um, it is indisputable that there has been damage uh, from these leaks. There are, there are communications that we used to collect that we're not collecting. Um, what the long-term impact of that is, it, it's too soon to tell. But I think there's a genuine recognition that we need to continue going forward um, to be more transparent. Because if if we don't have the trust of the people, in the long run, we won't be able to do our job.
2: Just two, two quick things. Um, do, would you anticipate that going forward there will be sort of voluntary disclosures about programs that aren't already known? Because so far what we've seen have been sort of the, the legal justifications for the things that have been disclosed.
3: I think to the extent that we can do it without compromising uh, the the sources and methods and the, the, the information we're collecting and the nature of our targets, yes. Um, but there's obviously... Um, the, the, the more granular you get, the more difficult that becomes.
2: And do you think the current oversight is adequate? Uh,
3: I, I do. I think there's a difference between the adequacy of the oversight process and concerns about the result. As I said, um, the intelligence committees and the judiciary and the executive branch all knew about these programs. Um, I, and the fact of the matter is that the intelligence committees, who are the designated overseers, uh, approved of these programs. Um, the complaint is not that there wasn't adequate insight into the program, but that people don't like the conclusions the oversight committees reached. That's, I think, a slightly different concern from saying there's inadequate oversight.
2: So, Kirk, what what is your take If, if, as Bob points out, there is this apparent difference between the conclusions the oversight committees arrived at and what? some in the public have arrived at. What does, what does that suggest? Well,
4: <clears throat> if you ask me about oversight uh, compared with 30 years ago, I would tell you it's virtually non-existent. I, as a fairly young analyst, remember going down to Capitol Hill with very sensitive documents in my hand, unreported data, what we typically called at NSA raw data. And I remember sharing it with the chief of the uh, HPSI staff a guy named Ken Kadama. And uh, we had a relationship then that I think was much more in the true nature of checks and balances. So that when NSA asked to spend several millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, Congress had a, a viable way of determining whether or not that money was really needed. I don't get the sense that that's possible today. Uh, partly because of the holding of sensitive information to certain members of the hipsi and the SISI. We've essentially said the the uh, committees themselves, parts of them, are not important to that process. So we've actually, since nine eleven, constrained the oversight process from what it used to be, under the guise that, well, the more people you tell about something, the more likely it's going to get out. That is true. That's a true assertion. But we have a democracy to uphold. And if we constrain knowledge to too too few people, we lose the very knowledge and capability to uphold the principles of democracy that we stand for. So I don't think surveillance is uh, uh, being checked upon in a truly effective way. And what I mean by that is NSA has spent 14 years modernizing going out into industry, doing some internal development to field the best possible uh, capabilities to manipulate digital information. What's happened to the oversight committees? Have they been modernized? Have they been given insight into NSA operations with uh, the same kinds of tools and capabilities? The answer is no. And I think you're paying for it also on the judiciary side, where now we change the court system and create a special court instead of using the Article Three courts uh, that could be used simply by equipping certain courts with the electronic computer-based services, rules-based programs that can give approval to NSA probable cause queries within seconds based on pre-established criteria. You know, the thing about data, digital information, especially data that's generated by machines And that's a lot of what you do when you swipe a credit card, use your easy pass. Machines annotate you, your account, your name, your address, your billing address, your location, et cetera, all automatically. And you're going through uh, your world, whether it's your smartphone or your credit card. You're doing this hundreds of times a day, maybe. And the, the issue is NSA can use all of that to establish a profile. That's a good thing. But why do you have to do it to hundreds of millions of innocent people? That is a problem. That's where I have a problem. I do not want to hurt NSA. I served 30 years there. And it's a needed capability to keep us safe. But my goodness, we need to observe the three legs of the government, the legislative process, the judiciary, as it was always intended. We don't need to say that we're at perpetual war and we can never go back to a democratic principle. We need to get away from that.
3: Can just And that is on the idea that um, there's a lot of information that's, that's limited to uh, the leadership of the committees. Um, I, again, I can only speak for what I've observed in the five and a half years I've been on the job. But that is really applied only for sensitive operations. Before the raid on Abbottabad, we did not brief the entire committee that that operation was going to be happening. But when you're talking about programmatic things, the kinds of surveillance that NSA does, those are briefed to the entire committee and briefed in detail.
5: So, Steve, you've,
2: you've certainly watched the Congressional, this kind of oversight process for a while. Do you feel like Congress has the technical understanding to be able to oversee something like NSA
6: programs? Um, I think it either has it or can get it, but I don't think that's the problem. I think um, the oversight process is broken in significant ways and I think we can see it in the response to the Snowden disclosures, which we kind of, in effect, we did a science experiment to test the oversight process. As as Bob Litt says, the, the intelligence oversight committees were fully briefed on the programs that were disclosed by Snowden. And the idea is that the committees are supposed to serve as a proxy for Congress and for the public as a whole. They are are given access to things that the rest of us are not allowed to see. But when Snowden tipped that system over and made that information available to a broader cross-section of Congress and the public, uh, the response uh, shows that the committees were not serving as a proxy for the larger Congress, there was a firestorm of opposition and concern, outrage, efforts to change the policy. Um, you know, it's true that the, as Siobhan said, that the, the legislative attempt to change failed, but it failed because we no longer live in a system where the majority rules. They only got 58 votes to cha- out of 100. We need, you need a supermajority now to change policy, it seems. But at any rate, the, the, the point is that the, the, the um, oversight committees are not accurately representing the full spectrum either of congressional, <clears throat> excuse me, or of um, public opinion. I, I just want to say
7: that's especially true on the conservative side for whatever reason. I mean, they're in the House. You have a very strong libertarian caucus who have been some of the strongest voices against surveillance. There are zero members. Of that on the oversight committee. Um, it's, 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 it, and I think that shows one of the limits of having a select committee where the leadership suggests the members.
3: That's not right. There are uh, uh, pe- members of the House Intelligence Committee who are um, quite on the libertarian side. I've, I've been interrogated by them. <laughs> 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 I, I, prefer, I prefer not to uh, identify my sources, but, but I've, been, I've been interrogated by them, I can assure you.
2: Um, Sharon, you've had a chance now to take a look at this from the, the, the side of the PCLB. How, how do you rate sort of the adequacy of the, the current oversight mechanisms?
5: So the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board is, is the new kid on the block um, in the oversight uh, arena. And um, Siobhan mentioned in her opening that we're newly invigorated. Really, we're newly existing. Um, the I, agency in its current independent form... I almost said reinvigorated, and I said, no, invigorated. Invigorated, yeah. We didn't exist. Um, the board in its current form as an independent agency only came into existence at all in the fall of 2012 when our four uh, board member, four of our board members were confirmed our chairman wasn't confirmed and didn't start. he started on the job four days before the Snowden leaks hit the press. So the agency was sort of immediately thrown into uh, this arena uh, and spent its first year of having five, five board members starting to have just a couple of us as staff looking at the Section 215 telephone uh, records program as well as the Section 702 uh, program, which has often been referred to in the press as PRISM as one part of that program and was able to do uh, really deep dives um, investigating those programs and providing a fresh, independent look um, at those programs. We hope that that will continue to be a productive role and a continuing part of the oversight uh, arena. We are situated somewhat differently than the intelligence um, committees in Congress as part of the executive branch, so some of those conversations can be easier um, in terms of some of the deliberative process privileges that uh, flow within the executive branch. And uh, so far, so good. I think we're trying to establish those productive relationships. As we move forward with these studies, we found that all of the agencies that were operating the programs were very responsive to our requests. Uh, All five board members and all of our staff are fully cleared to the top levels, uh, so we had full access to all the classified information uh, relevant to the programs. And at the end of the day, uh, the board came out somewhat differently on the two programs. With the Section 215 uh, program, a majority of the board found that that program was not uh, properly authorized by the Section 215 statute and recommended ending the program. And with the Section 702 or PRISM program, they reach a different conclusion, that that program was in fact um, fit within the statutory authorization. Uh, Also different uh, conclusions with regard to the effectiveness on the 215 program that the board found was not properly authorized, the board also uh, majority view that it was not sufficiently effective to uh, justify the program. A uh, different conclusion with regard to the Section 02, 702 program, where the board did find it was an effective program. So we look forward to moving uh, to forward as an important part of this oversight realm. So as you, as
2: you rate the system that you are a part of, what's, how would you gauge the, the adequacy of the current system?
5: I don't know that we're in a place to rate the overall <laughs> oversight structure. I think it is important to have these different roles as you look at it. It's the um, intelligence community uh, has a lot of operations. Uh, it's hard to have a window into everything that is going on. So. Okay. <laughs> um. Well, another key part of the
2: accountability process, as as Julian mentioned, um, is sort of this notion of transparency. And Bob also referred to sort of the the fairly large number of documents the the government has kind of put out um, in the wake of the the Snowden revelations. I'm wondering if if Steve and Sharon, you could kind of guide us through your sense of what role transparency plays in the oversight process.
6: Well, um, right now, transparency is a significant barrier to effective oversight. It really impedes communications um, between the intelligence community and its oversight bodies, between the oversight bodies and the public, and between the intelligence community and, and the public. Um, I mean, a few examples. Uh, lots of criticism in the Senate Intelligence Committee report on CIA interrogation. That they were provided inadequate, incomplete, incorrect information. That's not the way that way, that's not the way things are supposed to work. Um, the Department of Justice Inspector General uh, in a report last month, said he had submitted several reports for declassification and publication to ODNI. Um, in 2013, and they were still not available. So this this basic oversight function of sharing information is is impeded. Um, but I would say, um, you know, I think Bob said a very important thing that he and, and the DNI have said before, that um, in retrospect, uh, we would all have been better off if the intelligence community had been more forthcoming uh, about our surveillance programs, authorities, and practices, rather than letting Snowden disclose them. Um, and and I, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with that at this point. But importantly, nobody says that what Snowden uh, disclosed, like the first the first uh, FISA order on the Verizon Business Services, nobody says that that was not, legitimately classified under the executive order. It clearly did meet the criteria for classification. The problem is we have lots of information that is quote unquote properly classified, but that should be public. And the government, the intelligence community, nobody really has, a, has defined a good mechanism for distinguishing uh, or disentangling what is legitimately classified under the terms of the executive order from that information which should nevertheless be in the public domain. And um, I think that is the major task that remains to be undertaken in secrecy
7: reform. I'd actually, I'd go further than that. I'd say there's no enforcement mechanism for proper
5: classification,
7: none.
5: So I actually want to pick up on the theme that uh, Steve uh, was articulating there on declassification in the public interest. And the board, in developing its report on the Section 702 program, I think had a very positive experience in that regard. So as the board looked into this program, at this point a lot of information about how the program operated. This is the program where the government is targeting non-Americans located abroad, but may incidentally pick up the communications of Americans, and it collects the content of communications. That much was public. There was a lot of misinformation out there based on the state of public disclosures um, and leaks and partial attempts at clarification. And so I think a very important role that the board's report played was being able to describe how the program operated and provide a lot more detail. And we then sought public interest declassification of a lot of facts about that operation. And we reached out to the relevant agencies, um, as we're required to do, um, who uh, were the custodians of these, these classified documents and this classified information, and what uh, Steve Aftergard termed a sort of first-ever lateral request. Usually a request from for declassification might come from a member of the public or come from the president, um, but this was <coughs> a fellow agency in the executive branch making a lateral request for declassification, recognizing that the documents were properly classified in the first place, but that now in the current state of affairs with the public debate going on, there was a real public interest need to know more information and where those lines should be drawn. And I think the people that we worked with started out a little bit suspicious and wary. They didn't know where this was coming from, but over time, really put in a lot of effort and we were able to engage in what I think was a very productive dialogue. A lot of people put in a lot of time to talk through if um, what the board's request was. And the board didn't request that every detail there, uh, of the program be declassified. There are certain operational details that we fully recognize need to remain classified, but trying to provide a better picture and talking through with those representatives of those agencies where they would say, well, that thing that you want to say, that would reveal sources and methods, and talking through why and what their concerns were, and then we might be able to redraft something that they would be comfortable with. And at the end of the day, in our report, which is the whole thing is almost 200 pages, there's a 60-page approximately narrative describing how the program operates Um, According to one of my colleagues, it's over 100 newly declassified facts, and I think that that was a very productive experience. Now how much that's a model for the future is going to vary. We fully recognize that there are a lot of programs out there that are we're not going to be able to have that much declassified. Um, There will be much more sensitive. There will be a lot more classified information that cannot legitimately, legitimately be released, but Hopefully it is a model that in some senses can be declassified. And just one other point while I still have the floor. Um, the board's enabling statute includes um, that we are supposed to inform the public um, on our reports to the greatest extent consistent with the protection of classified information. So we have that f- affirmative obligation to try and make our reports public while respecting that classified information so, sort of really think through this kind of where should that line be drawn in a way um, that that conversation isn't necessarily always happening.
3: So, Shavonna, I I actually, I want to say, I actually agree, maybe surprisingly, with most of what Steve said. Um, There is a provision which uh, both Steve and Sharon have adverted to in the executive order governing classification, which provides that information can be declassified based on a determination that the public interest in disclosure outweighs the need for secrecy, and that's the basis on which the DNI ordered the declassification of the portions of the Senate Intelligence Committee report that were released. But there is a very real practical problem here of resources. Um, decl- as Sharon said, um, declassification of their report required a lot of time by a lot of people. How long? And, what?
6: How long?
5: was
3: I, the I, I, I can't tell you. But there, there were a number of agents. And when I say I can't tell you, it's because I just don't, don't know. Don't know. Um, but there were several different I was wondering
5: a- that's- I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the intensive process was about a month no. where we were it, back and forth in a room. Um, but it,
3: it involved several different agencies whose equities were involved. Um, declassification is not easy. It is very resource intensive. And we don't have a lot of resources to devote to it. And met, uh, to a great extent, those resources are, driven, uh, are are driven to respond to outside pressures. Uh, FOIA litigation. We have thousands of FOIA lawsuits pending, and we have judicial deadlines on those. Um, And it really makes it hard to step back and say, what do we think as a a matter of uh, good government and public interest, what ought to be uh, released? Because we just don't have the resources to do it. And And it's something that I feel very painful about, because I would love to be able to step back and say, okay... Here here are all these things that we think need to be declassified. I, I just can't find the people to do it.
7: Can I respond to that? I think that when information leaving aside, you know, the the situation where something is properly classified, when something's not properly classified, say something is classified to conceal violations of law or embarrassment, which the terms of the executive order forbids. I don't think it should be understood as simply a bureaucratic problem if that is classified and stay secret. I mean, we have a First Amendment. The classification system is a prior restraint on speech. Yes, there's a very, very compelling government interest, but there needs to be some tailoring. Someone actually has to check. You can't have a, the president says it needs to be secret um, exception. And I think one of the things that the Senate report we keep referring to shows is that, I mean, is it properly classified? If it was, then you can properly classify evidence of crimes.
3: Uh, there's a difference between classifying something for the purpose of covering up illegal activity and classifying something for legitimate national security reasons that happens to involve illegal activity. In the time, I can only speak again from my own personal experience, I have not seen a single instance on, on in my personal experience of anything that has been classified for an improper purpose. There's no question that there is stuff that, has been, that is classified that could be embarrassing or, uh, or, or otherwise harmful if it came out. But I have not seen it.
2: Kirk, in your experience, have you seen that? <clears throat>
4: um, when you classify something at NSA um, because of the amount of information and data that's being churned and reviewed for intelligence purposes, um, it's a pretty simple process, believe it or not. Um, your typical analyst learns the rules of the game. And the rules are pretty general uh, in terms of severity of damage to the country if anything's leaked or gets out in the public. Um, So maybe one or two people are involved in classifying a report issued by NSA. But as Bob Litt has pointed out, to declassify it, is almost an act of God. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's
3: a difficult... Either God or a whole lot of his minions. What it's, yeah, it's,
4: it's very, very difficult. But um, just going back for a moment on the issue of the adequacy of uh, oversight. Two things happened last night that hopefully all of you noticed in the heat of the moment to pass an omnibus bill. One new Bit of legis- legislation uh, describing something called Section 309 was introduced into the legislation that takes away due process from United States citizens uh, under the guise of mass surveillance. Um, the other thing that happened was that. The constraints that the Congress, the House in particular, had already put into place last summer to constrain NSA were conveniently snatched out in the moments before vote. That, I think,
3: serves to indicate that oversight is terribly, terribly broken. So I have no idea what this, the second thing you're referring to is. On the first thing, none that, of us do. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, no, I just don't know what provision you're talking about. Right. Um, um, I think I meant on, I, But I can talk about Section 309, which is actually not part of the um, uh, appropriations um, bill. Right. It's in the intelligence authorization bill. And it, it absolutely does not do what people have said it does. It does not give any authority to the NSA to do anything. What it does, in fact, is impose restrictions. On, the, on, the, on surveillance. What it says is when you collect information about Americans, regardless of the authority you collect it under, whether it's under FISA or any other authority, you must the limit the retention of information about those people. So I don't know why people are misreading this as if it gives authority to NSA. It does not.
7: I think the issue is it So it imposes, if I'm referring to the correct position, I think it imposes um, minimization guidelines that occurs across authorities, including 12333. And so that can be interpreted as ratifying 12333 collection, or it can be interpreted as imposing standards where there there are none.
3: I mean, 12333 collection has, has existed for a long time. Uh, Congress, Congress has been fully aware of it. The, the, the point is that this doesn't tell NSA you can do something you couldn't do before. This simply says, if you do what you're already doing, you have to, you have, to have restrictions on yeah, it. Yeah,
4: and my primary point is, and this, this will be debated, no doubt, by wiser people than myself, why wait till the last moment in the heat of an omnibus spending bill to do this
3: kind of thing? This was actually, this this was was actually very yeah. disingenuous. This was actually in the Senate Intelligence Committee's version of the Intelligence Authorization Bill. It was debated and passed out. It was not in the House bill, and then it was put in the in the uh, conference, uh, 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 co- the consensus conference bill that was passed through.
5: I, I wanted to go back to the earlier um, discussion about declassification and the challenges and time it takes. One... Uh, of the board's recommendations in its first report on Section 215 was that going forward, now that we've had some of this conversation about the importance of transparency and a better understanding of where those lines need to be drawn, that when the FISA court decides a case involving a novel legal issue or novel application of technology, that the judges can draft the opinion with an eye toward there being a declassified version. And they've already started to do this. They started to do this before the board's report came out, that if they sort of think going forward, this is something that could be valuable to the public to see on this legal issue and can draft it so that the specific facts and operational methods that need to remain classified are easily um, segregated in a portion that can be blacked out, that that will facilitate that process so that it will be much easier to proactively declassify those kinds of documents. Do you want to jump in on mm-hmm. that? I
6: would just add that the, um, the intelligence authorization bill that um, you cited, Bob, also includes a provision calling on the DNI to provide Recommendations on how the declassification process could be improved. Right. Um, more, more money, more people. Well, that's one answer, but I think there has to be a better answer than that. Um, I think you know, if you if you if you follow the demand for declassification, there's a new issue almost every day. Yesterday, uh, Senator Levin on the Senate floor said, you know, there's a CIA letter about a concerning a meeting in Prague by Mohammed Atta. Can we see it? Can we see the underlying information? A a perfectly reasonable request, very hard to, apparently for the government to deal with. The day before there was a resolution introduced by Senator Udall saying we want to see the records of CIA covert action in Indonesia in the mid 60s associated with the coup there. Um, uh, You know, there, 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 there is increasing demand Um, Non-frivolous requests and the system is as it exists is incapable of accommodating or responding to those requests and so Whatever the way of doing business that exists right now, it needs to be upgraded and improved.
3: And and I say in all seriousness, because you know how the respect I have for you, I would welcome the opportunity to sit down with you and get your thoughts. On,
1: I would welcome on what the opportunity we to give you my thoughts.
7: But
6: you
7: offer a couple now. It's a deal. <laughs> can I come? Where?
3: Or... <laughs> well, yeah, you're all invited. Uh, um, I, I'd prefer perhaps a, a, a somewhat, more, somewhat
6: I, different I'll format. I'll tell you what. The, <laughs> to, uh, I, I think the, the crucial step is to take the issue outside of the originating office or the originating agency. If I go to the CIA and I ask the CIA for a CIA document, they they're you know they go into a defensive crouch. They are protective. They, 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 they're, they're looking out for their own interests, understandably, that's their first priority. If the decision is taken out of CIA or out of NSA or out of whatever the originating agency is and given to a, uh, a body that has a broader cross-section of interests, even if I'm not, I'm not saying I should be on it, but I'm saying if there is somebody who has a broader vision, a broader perspective, a broader understanding of what the national interest might justify, then you're likely to get a different result. And I think that would be a useful step <coughs> for, for requests of a certain magnitude or urgency or public interest.
7: Yeah, the, I mean, I think the justification in the executive order is that the original classifying authority has the greatest expertise. The original, they, sorry? In the executive order, it gives a lot of the authority to the original classification authority. That's right. Um, that's who gets delegated to make the decisions. The it's right. to yeah, it's, it's the um, director Brennan, if it's the CIA. Um, and yes, there's expertise, but there is also the highest, po- you know, the highest possibility of conflict of interest. And so, leave, broadening it is really important for that reason.
2: Um, I wanted to circle back a little bit to a point that, that Bob and Steve had hit on when you were talking about kind of the, the the briefings to Congress and sort of how that process goes. And I was wondering if Catherine and Bob could sort of sort of help us understand and frame the issue here when it comes to congressional oversight. Um, you know, as we saw with the release of the Snowden documents. Um, you know there were sort of varying degrees of understanding in Congress of what NSA was doing. Uh, highest degree of understanding was in the intelligence committees, and then it sort of tapered off from there. Um, and there is some sense that on certain programs, congressional staff are not brought in until later on. Um, oftentimes, they have the greatest expertise in in helping lawmakers who have responsibility for many things. Uh, you know, to, to to better understand the particulars of an issue, especially technical ones. Um, so maybe Catherine, if you can, if you can. And talk about, you know, what what the issues are there um, when it comes to, you know, congressional oversight of, of secret things. And this is sort of, uh, you know, on the assumption that, yes, the, the intelligence committees, you know, by and large will get a fair amount of information, particularly the, the specific lawmakers, but uh, the staff of the intelligence committees and, um, you know, some other committees also have equities there, too, or expertise.
7: Yeah. Okay, I'll begin by giving the Obama administration a compliment. Um, I think that as uh, Bob said earlier, there are fewer programs that are n- kept from the full Intelligence Committee now than there were under the last administration, I think. Um, there are. It's not quite true that the Intelligence Committees knew everything about the Snowden disclosures, I think. Um, Senator Feinstein has said she didn't under- know certain things about 1233. Senator Wyden, who certainly pays a lot of attention to these issues, has said he hasn't gotten close to getting to the bottom of it. Um, and the disclosures helped uh, spark a, some form of um, Senate intelligence investigation into a 12333 collection. Um, Senator Wyden also had to push for quite a while to get, I think, answers even privately on the number of backdoor searches under 702. There's the, the FBI still apparently doesn't collect that number for reasons I don't fully understand. Um, <laughs> the, but by and large, the members of the Intelligence com- c- Committee have the most um, information. There's less information to members of outside com- committees. There's less information to staff. Um, so on the question of staff, as as Siobhan said, um, he, this is actually in a Supreme Court decision in Gravel versus United States. The Supreme Court says that members of Congress simply cannot function without staff. But in intelligence matters that are so complex and technical, they are sometimes expected to do so, and it doesn't work. Um, This is especially acute in the House, I think, Um, but both the House and the Senate have a rule that personal office staff can't hold top-secret SCI clearances. Only committee staff can. Um, And, you know, so that means that there are members of the House Intelligence Committee who have no personal office staff to consult with on an issue. Um, And, you know, in practice, members of Congress really like to have their own staffs, and committee chairpersons often exert a high degree of control over the committee staff. And so, you know, if if Congressman Schiff wants to get briefed on something, he may just have to go himself.
3: He's on the committee.
7: He is on a committee, but he doesn't have a staffer who can get TSSEI Mm -hmm.
5: briefings. Can I just follow up on that? Actually, I would say the bigger problem um, from what you, the rule you mentioned, that Personal staff cannot get the highest level of clearances means that members of Congress who don't sit on the Intelligence yeah. Committee or some, or <coughs> Judiciary Committees also have a certain number of cleared staff. But if you don't have sit on one of those committees, you will not have a staffer that directly has a relationship with you who is cleared to that highest level. And so this came up certainly with regard to the Section 215 Telephone Records Program, where... The intelligence committees were, were fully briefed, um, as we understand it, the Judiciary Committee to some extent as well. But if you don't sit on one of those committees, you as a member of Congress would have to yourself go in and get that information. And when you're... And this goes back to the earlier conversation about where you draw the line about what is uh, public. Uh, As uh, Bob mentioned, Director Clapper has now said, well, we should have been more transparent about the scope of the 215 authority and what we were uh, expecting it to do, what we were interpreting it to cover. If you can have a public debate, if you can have members of Congress, all members of Congress, have that debate and have full information and access to that information, you may need to allow the staff in there and have a greater level of public transparency about the rules. And then maybe some of the public details are, excuse me, some of the operational details, the non-public operational details would be confined to these people who are fully cleared and in this, within the intelligence committees.
3: So, so I actually don't have a lot of sympathy for the complaint that says members of Congress really like to have their own personal staff. Um, there are a lot of things I'd like to have as well. Um, There are 40 staff members on the Senate Intelligence Committee. There are 30 staff members on the House Intelligence Committee. There are cleared staff members on um, the the Judiciary and the Appropriations Committees um, and the Armed Services Committees. Um, There are an awful lot of staff members with clearances. On the 215 and the 702 programs, um, we offered, before before these statutes were reauthorized, we offered briefings to all members where we would come in and we'd fully explain the programs. We had about eight House members who showed up for the briefing. And I, I agree that this is important stuff. And if, if members of Congress can't make the time to come and learn about the intelligence activities, um, I, I guess I'm, I'm concerned that about, to coin to a phrase, half-assed oversight being worse than not letting them in the door at all. And, and I, 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 you may be able to tell by my tone of voice that it's something I feel pretty strongly about.
7: I'd like to respond to that. Um, first of all, there's no question that members of Congress off the oversight committee without staff, just by reading the press and asking questions, can make a lot of difference. I mean, there are Congressman Amash, who is not on the hipsey, and I, I believe would never be allowed near hipsey. No, um. but, he,
3: but, he did, but he did show up for the briefing that yeah, we gave. Yeah, right,
7: he cares, he, he engages. He cares and, about it, so, so he made the time to do it. Yeah, and, and so that a lot of some of it is will, but the numbers um, Bob just gave, compare that to the size of Congress and compare that to the size of the intelligence community. They are tiny. It's true um, Just I, I, I want to hear everybody's sort of recommendations. I know Steve
2: kind of kicked us off, but but just one issue just because it's a little bit newsy um, that came up in some of our conversations. I was sort of curious what um, what the panel thought of Mark Udall's uh, sort of impassioned recommendation on Wednesday to uh, have the declassification of the Inspector General report on the, uh, the allegations that the CIA was improperly accessing Senate uh, files and then the finding of the IG that indeed some uh, CIA officers improperly accessed Senate computers on this particular network, having to do with the um, the, the investigation into the the agency's um, interrogation and detention program. Um, just sort of we can kind of go quickly down the line. I'm sort of curious what the what the view is of, of the advisability at this point of declassifying something like that. In in the in the note, sort of pulling together actually a lot of it themes because that would be perhaps an area where uh, transparency would be leading to accountability Um, but we also discussed how difficult it can be to declassify things so maybe just Um,
6: I I mean I naturally think it it ought to be declassified Um, there may be privacy considerations of of the individuals that that deserve to be protected but it's an issue of of really of constitutional significance uh, separation of powers um, And uh, and it's an an example uh, where the the agency that has the most immediate interest, uh, namely the CIA, should not be the one calling, making the decision as to whether or what gets declassified.
7: Um, I think it should be declassified. Shocking. Um, You may find me, I didn't have time to um, get Senator Udall's speech into the conference materials. You may find me handing it out in the halls later if I, if I can find a copy, It's really so important. It's the sequel to, to Senator Feinstein's um, speech in March. Um, and I think it's a lesson of what happens when oversight takes place in the open and what happens when committees step back and let it occur behind closed doors. So since Senator Feinstein's speech, two things have changed. The Department of Justice has decided not, it will not prosecute the staffers who wrote the torture report and the report will not be suppressed. So that, the, both of those are very important things, and, and I wasn't sure either of them were going to happen at, at one point, so that's a huge relief. But as far as getting answers on what happened in March, we're, we're no further than we were, and there's a passage of Senator Udall's speech where he says that...
2: Well, we, wanna, we, we do need to... No, th- no, no,
7: sorry. I, I'm not going to read. I'm not going to read, but basically says that um, he describes getting stonewalled by the CIA for nine months, um, and I think that's going to keep happening unless either the, the, um, either that's released, or and that's only going to get released if the public demands it.
4: Uh, I agree. Put sunshine on it. Get it out there. Let's find out what's going on. That's what uh, transparency, that's what oversight is.
5: So I think there's a real importance to oversight being able to be conducted independently without interference, but I can't speak to this specific context at all.
3: So I generally speak I'm, I'm not going to talk about the specific document. I will make two points. Generally speaking, I favor declassification and release of things that can be declassified and released. Um, I would note that there's also still pending um, an accountability board at the CIA, which is being chaired by a former member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and there's an investigation by the uh, sergeant at arms of the Senate into what went, on it, what went on at the Senate side of things. I think it's important to get it all out, and to the extent it can all be de- declassified consistent with the privacy concerns that Steve mentioned uh, and released, I, I, I generally favor that.
7: There was at least a news report that the sergeant at arms investigation had ended. I don't know if I'm was. sorry? There was, a, there was a news report that the sergeant at arms investigation had ended. I- I don't know. Had, had ended. Yeah.
3: Well, then I would hope that they would release whatever their findings are as well.
7: Um just I, I want to kick it to Q&A,
2: but if 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 cuz there was earlier talk of recommendations if there are any other sort of recommendations for improvements.
3: I suspect Steve has more, but 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 we, we can talk about those offline. <laughs> <laughs> It, 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 would, it would use up the rest of this panel and the, and the rest of the day.
6: Um, I, I would just say that I think there's benefit in um, establishing as many points of contact as possible uh, among the different parties that are concerned here. The press, the public, the the congressional committees, which are not represented on, on this panel, <coughs> um, the executive branch, um, uh, you know, Bob Litt. Has other things to do. Did not need to be here. I'd like to express appreciation. I see him, or hear him, or you know s- see him debating in public much more frequently than any of his counterparts or inter- interlocutors in other branches of government. I'd like to expre- express appreciation for that. I think it it you know it speaks well of him and his agency. and it it helps clarify some of the the issues or at least the points of disagreement. I think we need more uh, exchange and more interchange.
3: And I will will simply say in the same vein that we have an annual uh, conference of lawyers from across the intelligence community uh, each year and we invited Steve to be one of our keynote speakers last year and I think he was very well received. Uh, He did not hold anything back, but I think it's important for the lawyers in the community to hear that perspective.
2: Okay,
1: let's
5: get to Q and A
1: for a little bit. Ooh, uh, Steve Winters, local researcher. Uh, it, it, uh, I'm pretty sure I have my memory correct here, but about a year ago, uh, Congressman Amash gave a talk here, right at Cato and outline the extreme difficulty he found in getting to these meetings that were described where he could find the information which was legally required to be available to him uh it clearly was a case where he said uh, every effort was made to schedule at inconvenient times to do this to not inform congressmen so i don't th- uh, i just throw that out just check with him on that and in terms of the expert uh you know, people with a, a security, uh, whatever, uh, clearance as assistance to uh, congressmen, not the staff people, but you're talking about their own staff, uh, personal staff. Uh, this an interesting story from Bruce Schneier. Bruce Schneier, the security expert, very well known, was given access to uh, some of the undisclosed uh, uh, Snowden papers for a certain period of time. And there were requests by some members of Congress for Bruce Schneier to come and brief them on the details of some of these programs. And the whole thing it turned out to be impossible to do because he did, you know, the, the security clearances didn't work out right, even though the point is he had the information it's Congress trying to find it out. Now, presumably, maybe if they had a staff member with the right security clearances, he could have briefed that person. What?
2: Oh, OK. So. Was there a question?
1: The, the question was, I mean, it's the same issue that comes up with FOIA, FOIA. Uh, there's a lot of stonewalling going down. What, so what, what, what do you really propose to do about this in particular? Because you mentioned Amash.
7: I'm
3: I'm, I'm kind of stymied uh, by the question. Go ahead.
7: (laughs) Okay. Um, So I'm not a Hill person by any means, but I did do a a short fellowship in a congressional office. And one of the things I learned there was just how limited member time is and how the breadth of issues that they deal with. Um, You know, I've I've specialized in certain issues for 10 years, and suddenly I had to learn everything. um, And that's as a staffer. Um, So when there's a trade agreement, say, hey, that's hundreds of pages long, and the only member, way a member can read it is to go down himself and read the 800-page document, that, that just doesn't work. And he might not be able to discuss it with his staff afterwards either. So I really do think staff is essential.
8: This is mainly a question for Bob, but I'd love for the others. This is a a very (laughs) friendly question, I promise you. Uh, So of of the 70 congressional staff that you mentioned who work on the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, uh, I'm wondering how many of them have a technical background. And then separately, there have been proposals over the last year to have a special advocate work for the FISA court or be be allowed to to present before the FISA court to help them out. I know the FISA court has a permanent staff of of really smart lawyers who understand intelligence law. It's my understanding that the FISA court does not have any full-time technological staff. And if you read the declassified FISA opinions, it's clear that this stuff is really, really complicated technically. And at various points in time, I think the FISA court probably didn't really understand how some of the programs were being implemented. Would you support? Uh, a special advocate that was technical. Would you support the FISA court itself employing full-time technologists? And do you think the Senate and House Intelligence Committees should have either some or more uh, technical staff who can advise them? And I I also welcome the thoughts of others on on the panel.
3: So I, I have no idea what the technical uh, background of people uh, on the staff is. I know there are some people who seem to have some technical expertise. But I, I just, I, on the congressional staff, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, on the FISA Court, the um, USA Freedom Act, which, as you know, we did support, uh, contained a provision to allow the FISA Court to appoint experts, uh, technical experts, to, to assist them in particular cases. And I, I, th- I think that's generally a good idea. I, I wish the USA Freedom Act has pa- had passed. Um, we'll have to see what happens in the next Congress.
5: So um, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board also made recommendations along those lines, um, including in favor of a special advocate and including that the court should turn to use existing authorities. We understand they don't need any legislation enacted to do this to call on outside technical experts. Um, There are issues, I imagine, with them getting uh, clearances, um, and so they would have to take steps to make that happen, but that's certainly something the board supported as well.
9: Hi, Marcy Wheeler. Um, I'm, Did I convince you
3: on 309?
9: Um, I can see both sides of the issue. Okay. Uh, but, I, but I think... Well, that's an improvement. If, if OD and I had not spent so much time making less than credible arguments about ratification on Section 215, it wouldn't be such a concern.
3: We can agree to disagree on that. Okay.
9: Think. So um, <laughs> the, um, I want to know if you have any special insight about FB FB... FBI oversight, because I think, I have concerns about NSA, that's where we've all been focusing for a year and a half, but FBI is orders of magnitude worse, and um, Steve mentioned the IG reports, one of those happened to be the 215 report, which somehow didn't come out before USA Freedom was voted on, Um, FBI sort of obstinately refuses to tag the source of their data, some of which comes from NSA, which NSA has had to do since 2009. So the same things that NSA is required to do just for spying, FBI is not required to do, yet they're the ones throwing people in jail. So.
3: Uh, I mean, we we made, as a nation, a policy choice after 9-11. There was a lot of discussion about should we set up a separate domestic intelligence agency. Um, and the, the choice was made, no, we're going to keep it in the FBI. And that necessarily means we've got an agency that does both intelligence and law enforcement. And that creates a whole lot of complications, particularly in an environment where um, every commission that's looked at every uh, terrorist attack has said, we need to ensure that there's a greater flow of information back and forth. So I'm not, I'm not really in a position, I don't have that much, because FBI is part of the Department of Justice, I don't have the same visibility into oversight there that I do with respect to the NSA. But the problems are much more complicated because of the dual functions of the FBI. Shahid Buttar, Bill of Rights Defense Committee. I have a question for Mr. Litt. Uh, So last year, your boss, in an exchange with Senator Wyden, uh, did intentionally at least obfuscate a question that he later acknowledged in writing was, quote, clearly erroneous. The question I have for you is, what would you say to the millions of Americans around the country concerned with uh, over-policing, and their exposure to hypervigilant justice so severe that unarmed people are being murdered in the streets with impunity while officials paid in taxpayer dollars commit clear crimes in whether it's, whether it's your boss lying to Congress or whether it's the CIA hacking the Senate, uh, when there's impunity for espionage operations and lying to the people's representatives without legal consequence, what is your message to communities of color that are over-policed? So I'm not, I'm not going to talk about communities of color. I do know something about... Um, Director Clapper, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read the letters I wrote to The New York Times and The New Yorker about this. Um, It is utterly wrong to say that he lied. There's a a famous quote from uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. It says, even a dog knows the difference between being tripped and being kicked over. And the point there is that lying means you're saying a conscious falsehood intentionally. I was with the DNI, and I was with it both before, during, and after that. And I can tell you that he made a mistake, and he acknowledged making a mistake because he was at he was at a hearing. Uh, he, he I, I can't hear what you're saying. Sorry. What? He he did not because. He, he did not, the question is, did he do it in public before, did he correct it in public before the, disclosure, the Snowden disclosures? And the answer is he didn't. We, we, and maybe he got bad advice from his lawyer on this. Um, but we talked, <laughs> we talked about this immediately after the hearing because we went to him and we said, you know, that, that's not right because of this 215 program, which he had not focused on. If you read his answer, you'll see he's clearly t- thinking of the 702 program. Um, that's clear from what he says. And we talked about, can we correct this or not? And the problem was, and I had conversations with Senator Wyden's staffer about this, and the problem was to correct this on the public record, we essentially would have had to reveal the program that was still classified. So it, it, is, it is A, wrong, and B, kind of annoying to me that people continue to repeat this uh, statement that he lied because he didn't. And so to, to, go on to, your, uh, to go on to your question, I would say that the difference between uh, this and other things is that there was not a crime committed here.
2: In retrospect, do you think that it, it, it should have been handled differently? Or do yes. You think it
3: was I, I, that's why I say he, got ba- he may have gotten bad advice from his lawyer. Well, what, and,
2: what, but in, in retrospect, what, what would retrospect, have been the right way to handle
3: what it? What would have been the right way to do it would be to send a classified letter to the committee immediately thereafter saying, I misspoke, but I can't reveal it on the public record. And I, and I, and I regret one of the things I regret in five and a half years on the job is that I did not uh, advise the DNI to do that.
7: In a situation like that, I think that in addition to a class... If if there's public testimony, there should at least be some public marker that there is a classified addendum to some testimony in that hearing. Otherwise, the public is still left with an actively misleading impression.
3: No, the problem is that there shouldn't be questions asked about classified hearings, classified programs in public hearings.
7: Well, Senator Burr agrees with you there, so you're probably okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Thank you. I'm Adam Eisgar with the American Library Association. Great panel. Um, Mr. Litt, I appreciated your uh, comment a couple of moments ago that you uh, thought that additional transparency and additional expertise being provided to the FISA court was important. Um, may I hope that you feel equally strongly that it's important for the FISA court to have the availability of special advocates? That was a provision in the very late stages of the USA Freedom Act negotiation that uh, uncomfortable rumors indicated might get traded away. And it would be helpful, to be perfectly blunt, in the coming debate to have your endorsement of the special advocate as important to civil liberties. So two things. First of all, I think actually the House bill also had a provision for special advocates. It just had a a sort of different trigger threshold. Um, I would say that... um, my endorsement is probably considerably less important than the fact that the president of the United States has endorsed it. Um, and so I don't think there was any likelihood that it was going to be traded away, and I don't think it's going to be traded away, um, at least not by the administration. I, I have no idea, frankly, what's going to happen to this bill in the next Congress. There may be somebody sitting a couple of rows behind you who has a better knowledge of that than I do. Um, but, uh, but I think we're, we would, from my perspective, I'd like to see that bill introduced and passed. That, the, the bill as a whole, including that provision.
2: Um, yes, the yellow shirt.
6: Uh, hi, Jake LaPerouque, Center for Democracy and Technology. Um, I actually just wanted to follow up with that comment about the USA Freedom Act. While many of the provisions, changing the FISA core, changing
8: section 215, require action by Congress, uh, other provisions, notably government transparent and requirements and permitted company reporting
6: could be enacted by the administration which as Mr. said has endorsed the bill today. Um, So I'm wondering do you think that the administration should and has it engaged in any thought to enacting those provisions on its own right now as opposed to waiting for congressional action?
3: So I I guess I always feel uncomfortable talking about what the administration may or may not be considering. Um, I kind of tend to think that that things that are being considered should be kept under wraps until a decision is made.
9: Hi, I'm Sheila Sorry. Um, I'd like to ask if we actually trust our national security information with the Israelis and the British, and yet we don't allow tenure to a political professor you know, of political science and a PhD in, uh, in philosophy, H- how do you decipher that? I don't get it. Why would a person who is a U.S. citizen teaching in a U.S. institution not be trusted more than an Israeli or a British agent? Are you referring uh, uh, to a specific? Assuming
3: that question is directed at me, I don't know enough about the facts that you're talking about to, to offer uh, 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 an opinion.
2: Gentleman in the back.
10: Thanks. I'm Daniel Schumann with Crew. This question is for Mr. Lip, but. Can you speak
2: if- a little louder. Sure. Uh,
10: I'm Daniel Schumann with Crew. Can you all hear me? Okay. Uh, this Absolutely. question is for Mr. Lip, but it's also directed to other members of the panel. Uh, Just a couple days ago, we had uh, major speeches by uh, both the chairman and the former chairman of the Intelligence Committee where they raised a number of concerns in the context of the torture report, both with with the CIA. Uh, They said, for example, that the CIA provided extensive amounts of inaccurate information about the operation of the program and its ineffectiveness to the White House, the DOJ, Congress, the CIA, Inspector General, the media, and the American public. And there are other same. That was by Senator Feinstein. Senator Rockefeller, who's the former chair, uh, said, uh, the study is, the, is also the story of the breakdown in our system of governance that allows the country to deviate in such a significant horrific way. One of this was through the active subversion of meaningful congressional oversight. This isn't an activist saying, this is the former chair of the, uh, of the Senate Intelligence Committee who then went on to say, it's clear that the briefings that you referred to earlier um, that that, that um, were not meant to answer any questions, but were intended only to provide cover to the administration to the CIA, and that the more the committee dug, the more the committee found, and the results we uncovered were both shocking and deeply troubling. Now, of course, these statements that were just recently made were, were made in the context of the torture report, um, but of course, you know, it could reasonably be inferred that this could apply to other matters such as surveillance. Would you address? Questions of uh, credibility for the CIA and the intelligence community, particularly when you have the chairman, uh, current, and former of the intelligence committees saying themselves that they find the CIA to be less than forthcoming, less than credible, to be misleading both to themselves and to their uh, overseers within the executive branch.
3: I guess I'd refer you to Director Brennan's remarks yesterday, um, and I'd, I'd rest on what Director Brennan said in that regard. Um,
6: I would like to add that. Um, uh, I understand, of course, where the question is coming from, but I would be reluctant to paint the Intelligence Oversight Committees as, as either heroes or victims. Um, I think they have a lot to answer for themselves that they have not yet attempted to um, address. Um, they, they are not you know, passive bystanders. They're the ones writing the checks for where we've been for the last dozen years. And, uh, and there hasn't been any kind of exercise in self-criticism or self-awareness about where their own oversight fell short. I, and I think that's a serious um, defect on their part, um, including in the, in, the, in the torture report. By all means, attack the CIA. But why not ask, you know, where were we? Why didn't we do a better job? Um, and if we were misled, why weren't we in a better position to compensate for that and uh, and exercise more leadership on torture, on surveillance, on all kinds of issues?
7: Yeah, in answer to that, I think um, they did get really inaccurate briefings, and they did get shut out. Um, the my main criticism of intelligence oversight in that period is that this was actually starting to come out into the press. You know. Yes, you know, Senator Feinstein didn't get briefed on the CIA program until, you know, I think a few hours. Yeah, a few hours before President Bush disclosed it. But I knew about it, (laughs) right? I mean, you just had to read the newspapers. Um, Now, that said, Senator Rockefeller did try to um, investigate. I don't think he tried to, you know, I don't think he... Pursued it as strongly as he could, but he did ask to investigate, and the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee at the time, Pat Roberts, a Republican, shut it down. He um, and you know accused Rockefeller <laughs> of being obsessed with attacking our intelligence personnel, which I think goes to show the intelligence community. I mean, the intelligence committee contains multitudes. Um, it contains Ron Wyden and Mark Udall and Richard Burr and Saxby Chambliss. There's, why differences in the leadership changes. And so if you increase the power of individual members of the committee and individual members of Congress to ask for oversight, because there's so much more variation, that that means that you don't want it to rest in the hands of one person, whether there's oversight or not.
2: I think we have time for one more question. So go for it.
11: Thanks. I'm Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post, and not to gang up on you, Bob, but this is a question. <laughs> I, knew,
3: I knew what I was getting you for. <laughs> Thanks.
11: Uh, about Section Two Fifteen bulk collection, and President Obama, in his January speech, made clear that his preference would be to uh, have the uh, uh, the government end the a collection of phone metadata, and he asked Congress to work with him on it. So far, you know, it's almost it's a year later, still no uh, progress. So what obstacles are there to the administration moving on its own administratively to end that NSA collection of the phone metadata now on its own? I know it would be preferable to have that enshrined in legislation, but why can't you move now <clears throat> to do it, and hopefully Congress will follow suit? What obstacles are there practically?
3: But I think if you go back and look at what the president said, he said he would like to end the collection, the bulk collection, <laughs> and replace it with something that provides the same operational utility
4: mm-hmm. without
3: having the bulk collection. The problem is that without legislative reform, we cannot do something that creates the same operational utility. What st- we we exactly are we can we can stop? Well, if you look at the provisions of the USA Freedom Act and what what it requires, um, we can't do that without legislation as it currently exists. And so um, if if Congress, I mean, I I promise you that the president wants to stop this, but he also doesn't want to deprive the intelligence community of of the capability.
11: Are you referring to the capability to do contact chaining or two hops? And is that something that you need to mandate by law on the companies?
3: There there are a variety of, of, of things that need to be done in the legislation and that were done in the legislation. We spent a lot of time working uh, both with the the Congress and frankly with with privacy and civil liberties groups and so on so that we got, so that we ended up in a place where assuming that the telephone companies continue their current practices with retaining data, we would be able to replicate the operational utility, but we couldn't do it without the bill. Thanks.
2: Well, I think our time is, was there some? Well, I just
3: want
4: to comment. That sounds very foreign to me. Uh, Again, I worked as an analyst for over 30 years and just before we left NSA, and I'm talking about Bill Binney, myself, and a few others, made some huge technology breakthroughs that did not require special legislation to put into effect. But we were swept aside by money interests, uh, faulty thinking about what a proper analysis business process is, um, and I'm telling you, there is nothing preventing the government from asking us who know how to do this and safeguard privacy and catch bad guys in big data from inviting us into a conversation. And I will tell you, we've never been asked, not by Congress, not by the executive, no one.
3: The problems are not technical. That's all I want to say. The problems are, uh, uh, are not technical.
4: But
0: they legal. are partially technical.
4: This but I'll un- leave it to a lawyer to tell you otherwise.
0: I'm afraid. I'm afraid uh, this is this is this is one I. Uh, well, I hope you will uh, continue later uh, over uh, a couple of beers. I hope you will join me in uh, thanking our uh, our panel. Um, and, uh,